Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Delbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my colleague Giselle Donnelly, also a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And Julia Joja with the Middle East Institute. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is uh, Hannah Schellest, the Director of Security Programs at the Foreign Policy Council Ukrainian Prism, who is joining us from Odessa in Ukraine. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Julia, I want to turn to you first. Um, we've seen uh, over the past couple of hours uh, a really dramatic turn of events uh, for the worse in in Ukraine. I think it was a very bleak night for many of us. Uh, I don't think many of us has, have gotten much sleep. Uh, I wonder if you could just share with us your, your initial reactions to what we are seeing on the ground uh, and then turn to Hannah for, for her observations uh, directly from, 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 from Ukraine. Thank you, Dalibor. I won't take too long. I uh, went to sleep with war. I woke up with war the few hours that I got to sleep. Um, and uh, what has been striking to me in the early hours last night in D.C., in the morning in Ukraine is uh, media coverage from the West. I had trouble finding um, information on the ground. I was rather following social media, friends in Ukraine, friends who were covering on the ground, and friends who were following um, that uh, now infamous speech that appears um, to have been recorded actually a few days ago. Um, so it's, it's really hard to make sense of what is happening. Um, the drama is unfolding, um, the news are unfolding, and most importantly, and Hannah will tell us more about this, disinformation is unfolding too. The one thing that I wanna, I wanna say is, um, I think Ukraine is teaching us a lesson, um, all of us in the West. Uh, we never saw a country being able to stand so brave in front of such a power with so much uh, meaning um, uh, so much, uh, so much, pro so many problems, and such a monstrous take on what is happening in Ukraine. Ukraine is standing brave. So, I'm turning to you, Hannah. I'm so glad um, we got you here. Um, it's uh, it's an enormous privilege to have you from the ground. I've known you for so many years um, since you were a Black Sea girl long before I was a Black Sea girl. We met at the Black Sea NGO Forum um, a long time ago. And, uh, and ever since, you've done amazing work on Ukraine, um, including uh, working on the naval strategy for Ukraine, uh, including coordinating the Crimea platform last year on the NGO side. And now you're in Odessa between interviews with an amazing internet connection, as we can see. Um, so uh, I want to turn to you first for a view of, um, of what is happening from Odessa. Um, what are you seeing? What is true? What is false and what um, what should we be looking for? I'm wondering if uh, Hannah is frozen or uh, being denied service. Yeah, she's gone. Uh, maybe she's going to try to log back in. Let's let's talk in hopes that uh, she can get back in. One of the things that 
um, Hannah described prior to uh, us losing our connection uh, was that, in fact, uh, there were no Russian troops in Odessa. That is one thing that's been reported um, widely in the here she comes Hello. back. Let's hope uh, in the Western media. Hello, Hannah. Welcome back. Yeah, uh, the, the internet connection collapsed <laughs> exactly as you said that. <laughs> The Russians haven't got you yet, at any rate. Yeah. Uh, what we were just talking about was the the, the fact, as we were discussing um, in the run up to the recording, that in fact there don't appear to be any Russian forces in Odessa proper, which is one thing that's been uh, seriously misreported in the Western press. And uh, your news is very good news to my ears because Odessa is one of the things that I was, you know, one of the principal things that I was watching to judge uh, Russian intent. So if you could pick it back up and continue your tour of the horizon from, from your post, that would be more, very helpful. Yeah, so uh, um, definitely it would be better to discuss the general Black Sea issues uh, today, but the situation dramatically changed uh, this night when at five o'clock in the morning, the assault, uh, uh, missiles assault started at the whole Northern and Eastern border plus on the South. I personally woke up at five o'clock in the morning from the sound of the blast. It was not the explosion, but the work of the anti-missile uh, system protecting the city. And uh, the next one being heard in the downtown where I live around 9.30 a.m. And since then I heard at least five or six very loud sounds of uh, systems working. I can't say how many exactly of them being because the territory of the city is quite big. But uh, I just talked with my uh, uh, friends in Moldova, what is, let's say, two and a half hours drive, and even they heard in Kishinev some of the sounds of the systems working uh, here early in the morning. So as for now in Odessa, the situation is uh, that uh, we are not under the same um, high shelling, uh, intensive shelling as the north and east. Um, they were first attempts. Uh, we see the armored vehicles around the town protecting the critical infrastructure. So the National Guard and Armed Forces are on the high alert. Also, they called reservists. Um, my colleagues who've been in the uh, reservists with the armed forces immediately since morning joined uh, their posts and now uh, should be stationed for protection. Then uh, we expected in the morning the attempt to attack the uh, very small island, which is closer to uh, Romania even than to Odessa Island, uh, Snake Island. Uh, several ships uh, surrounded in and asked our um, border service to surrender. Uh, what didn't happen, and as far as the border service reported, they managed to counterattack. So uh, as for now, it's safe. For how long, we don't know. The question is that most of the missiles uh, that are coming here, they are up to 400 um, kilometers range. So uh, that's quite an easy to attack from the sea because, for example, caliber missiles, uh, they can be both land and ship uh, based. And currently, uh, Russians brought additionally something like 40 ships within the last months to the Black Sea. And uh, all of them uh, are being uh, both for the amphibious operations and some of them with the heavy weapons for uh, such uh, maritime strikes. And uh, we see the helicopters around the town uh, protecting the airspace. We know that at the airport uh, uh, they brought all the uh, um, equipment that they have to the runway so not to allow the landing operations uh, at the airport so this preparation is happening and it's definitely extremely uh, nervous the mobile connection being 
lost for a bit uh, in the morning, so it's not very stable. We can't say that it is totally okay. But the internet, as for now, is working. Electricity is okay. So all other basic services are as they should be. Now, um, with with that overview, thank you so much. Um, maybe we can we can look a little bit at the political situation too. Um, there's a lot of um, disinformation out there um, that is affecting including Western journalists on one side. And on the other hand, of course, one of the most, uh, um, let's say, discussed scenarios is that Russia, as it has announced, um, wants to target um, the, uh, the political decision makers. So um, you're in Odessa, you're not in Kyiv, but what are you hearing in terms of public support and their protection vis-a-vis an attack on the ground um, in Kyiv? You know, Russians also said that uh, they are not going to attack Ukraine, but just to protect uh, separatist uh, territories. But um, in the morning, they've been shelling uh, cities which are 900 kilometers away from uh, the uh, contact line, like Lutsk or Ivano-Frankivsk, where they bombed uh, just in the downtown. So definitely to believe in Russian words uh, would be uh, not just naive, uh, but uh, definitely uh, unprofessional. If we speak about the political support, uh, um, even a few days ago, it's not only today, but it started a few days ago, uh, despite all the um, clashes between the political parties in Ukraine, uh, they started to speak about the unity. Uh, early morning, members of parliament, all of them from different political parties, except of the pro-Russian political party, they've been in the parliament voting for the martial law introduction in Ukraine. Uh, all members of parliament are now trying to support each other, to talk to media, to make as much as possible in their regions. Uh, in terms of population, uh, I talked with my friends in Kharkiv, in Lviv, in Kiev, in Chernigiv. Um, feelings are the same. We are staying, we are going to fight, we are going to defend our land. Uh, we can be against or pro our president in the peaceful times, but in the uh, uh, wartime, uh, that is our president, that is our government, that is our armed forces. Uh, definitely, we understand that we have the certain amount, it's approximately 10% of population who are perceived as pro-Russian. It's not exactly pro-Kremlin, it's not very homogeneous um, population, but still there are those who supported the pro-Russian political parties, for example, and talked about relations. I would like to see what is the situation now, because many of these people also thought that Russia would never attack. And they may change their position when they see the real actions, the real friendship in uh, quote marks of the Russian Federation. Uh, and uh, um, let's follow the events. I think that the um, behavior of the local councils in some towns like Zaporizhia, uh, Odessa, or, um, Kharkiv or Mariupol will be a very good sign to see uh, what is the public support. You know, part of the uh, uh, Russian uh, propaganda campaign is being waged through the Western media, not just um, on the political level, but it's been very interesting to see the military pictures that the Russians are allowing, uh, particularly American media, uh, to show. There was a clip <laughs> of uh, tanks and howitzers uh, moving uh, along roads near Belgorod, uh southward you know it, of course it was only you know a handful of vehicles uh 
that were also making their way through civilian traffic. So it was not the most martial situation that, that you might imagine. But also these uh, strikes, the missile strikes, are obviously for propaganda purposes, for, again, aimed at a Western audience to portray this uh, um, image of Russian military invincibility. Um, I just wonder how, if, if that makes any sense to you, and whether uh, when you talk to your friends in Kiev or Kharkiv that uh, they are describing the shelling as heavy shelling or light, you know, is what's your take on this uh, sort of Red Army picture that the Russians are trying to project? So uh, the pictures are very different and coming from different regions uh, because the different uh, um, forces being used by the Russian Federation. First of all, if to describe those pictures of tanks versus the civilian cars, uh, we just received a report that uh, one of such cars being bombed uh, by the Russian tank uh, because it had been going nearby. Uh, as a result, one woman killed and uh, the driver is uh, heavy wounded in the hospital. So you can imagine that uh, the same picture can be showed uh, uh, differently. Uh, also, when you speak about light or heavy, um, currently we have already confirmed seven Russian helicopters uh, being uh, um, shot down, plus several air um, crafts, uh, military aircrafts being uh, shot down. Approximately 50 people are captured. I mean, Russian military are captured. What is interesting, some of them are in the uniform, but uh, some of them are in the civilian and their task was to be landed, like from those helicopters, for example, that have been shot. Uh, some people being with the special equipment uh, for the uh, uh, targeting. So they should be deployed on the ground and sending the signals to the systems with the exact coordinates where to uh, um, shoot. So these pictures, luckily, our armed forces learned the strategic communications. It's not the same as we were in 2014. And them and National Security Council and uh, Border Services, National Guard, they are now trying to spread as much as possible of the videos uh, of what can be uh, showed. So it's not just their words against Russian words, but uh, you can see what is there on the ground. The second is that they are coming every hour to the briefings to the journalist and trying to post uh, in Twitter, in uh, Facebook, not only in Ukrainian, but also in English. So it says to me that maybe the first few hours, it could be quite a mess as in any conflict with the information. And Russians are working well with this information. But at the same time, as much as possible, now the civil society, the expert community, and even the foreign journalists, we had something like um, 500 journalists being now, foreign journalists being in Ukraine and more arriving. So definitely, if they want, they can uh, report what is true. The question is sometimes, what is the order from the producer? And here, the question sometimes remains open. I want to shift the gears just a little bit and provide a, a broader, uh, broader perspective uh, on what we are discussing. Uh, I want to read to you a short paragraph, couple of sentences from a letter by Central Eastern European leaders, uh, and then we can sort of talk about when this was written. Uh, and I quote, uh, uh, Our hopes that relations with Russia would improve and that Moscow would finally fully accept our complete sovereignty and independence after joining NATO and the EU have not been fulfilled. 
Instead, Russia is back as a revisionist power pursuing a 19th century agenda with 21st century tactics and methods. At the regional level vis-a-vis our nations, it increasingly acts as a revisionist one. It challenges our claims to our own historic experiences. It asserts a privileged position to, in determining our security choices. It is overt, covered means of economic warfare, uh, politically motivated investments to bribery and media manipulation to advance its interests and challenge the transatlantic orientation of Central and Eastern Europe. This was from a letter by a group of Eastern Central European leaders from new NATO countries in the summer of 2009. And, and my point is that, uh, you know, no matter how, how tragic what is currently unfolding in Ukraine is, it's certainly not unpredictable. There are many people who foresaw this, who saw this coming. Uh, it's been a train wreck in slow motion that's, that's been moving for better part of the past decade, if not longer. And we were, you know, reassured and reassured by uh, serious, smart people on both sides of the Atlantic that we are overreacting, that, that, that we are making a lot of fuss about nothing. Um, and yet here we are. Um, what, is, what is the, to the extent to which you can sort of capture it uh, anecdotally, to what, what, what is the mood on the ground about, you know, the, the Western attitudes towards the build-up to the situation? And, 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 you know, is there a sense of, you know, disappointment and betrayal the way there was in Czechoslovakia after Munich? Uh, is, there, uh, is there hope? How, 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 how are people sort of thinking about, uh, you know, the, the, the Western future of Ukraine if, if the West has not really, you know, shown up to the game? First of all, I would not uh, uh, unite the whole West uh, um, in this sentence because uh, definitely within the last few months we see very strong support, for example, from the United Kingdom, uh, sending yep. weapons and uh, money and support. Uh, then uh, just last night, a few hours before um, uh, the attack, uh, Latvia delivered uh, weapons to Ukraine. United States uh, since January delivered something like 10 airplanes full of uh, very important equipment equipment. Uh, small Lithuania have been delivering the uh, um, weapons uh, to Ukraine. And I can continue with the countries. Unfortunately, not all. And we have, for example, German position that being really odd, uh, telling that they cannot provide us with weapons because they have historical responsibility for Russia after Second World War. Our reaction was, uh, sorry, biggest uh, um, uh, casualties and uh, um, military attacks been happening at the territory of Ukraine. So how can you have responsibility against Russia, but not against Ukraine? However, a lot of politicians been telling this me personally in December last year when I was in Berlin. So um, that's why Ukraine probably learned to understand who are our friends, who are the suspicious, and uh, to differentiate the countries in terms of uh, the support. That's first. The second is that um, definitely Ukrainians for quite a long time uh, already talked that we should rely first of all to ourselves. That's why what we asked, it is the equipment, uh, it is the certain uh, ammunition so we can fight by ourselves. It was pretty well understandable that we should protect ourselves uh, only by ourselves. And uh, the biggest joke was uh, after new and new crisis, like also Brussels again is deep concerned or very deep concerned. 
So uh, that, that was the perception, like what we're expecting um, in the situation. Still, I would say that um, on the personal level, um, we understand it's, it, it was not a question of betrayal. It was something that many of the European Union countries been living in the completely different paradigm. Um, they perceived the world as the rule-based, uh, where international law matters, where human rights matters. And for them, psychologically, it was extremely difficult to accept that Russia can do it. It's not something, it, it, it's just physically you can't accept, you can't believe that it is coming in the 21st century in the middle of Europe. And uh, uh, we were in the same in 2014. When I talked uh, with our Navy who evacuated from Crimea several years ago and asked, like, what was the main feeling? They said, like, Anna, it was not the fear. It was just neglecting. We couldn't accept that it is happening psychologically. So it took us a few days to understand that that is real. And uh, I understand that for many of the Western countries, it is the same. They just started to understand that it was not just a play of uh, words, that it was not some paranoid statements from the Russian leader, but that he was really meaning what uh, he said, for example, a few days ago, that uh, he, he doesn't think that Ukraine is a state uh, or that Ukrainian people deserve um, any right for self-determination. You're very kind, Hannah, in, in your analysis and very generous. Um, and, and I guess that's part of the Ukrainian bravery. Now, before we wrap up, we do have to ask the question, with your assessment of each one um, helping or not helping, what do you think um, can be done more to help? We have the privilege of having a mainly U.S. audience, mainly based in D.C. Um, and so... Tell us um, how we can help uh, more with military equipment and also on the individual level. I saw messages um, with uh, bank accounts. If you want to donate, not for aid, um, not for humanitarian, the EU is next door, but for the Ukrainian armed forces, you can do that. Um, but tell us um, on a non-individual basis, what, um, what do Ukrainians need now in the midst of an invasion? Uh, first of all, at the even individual level, what can be done it is debunking Russian myths because now we would see a lot of, of the disinformation being spread and propaganda by the Russian uh, sources in the social networks, uh, in uh, our media, because we understand that they've been planting this for a long time. They've been involved and they had all these channels of communication, their proxies in Washington and in, in uh, different universities around the US. So it would be really important to work even at such a personal level where the Uh, not allowing to spread all these um, disinformation. The second, uh, if we speak about the national level, we need the unity. For the Russian Federation, the most dangerous is uh, uh, when uh, Europe and uh, the US and Canada are speaking with a single voice. Uh, for them, it's always easy to speak one by one and to break this unity. Uh, so uh, when we have the joint position, strong joint position, that is extremely important politically. At uh, other levels, Ukraine definitely needs the intelligence information. We need the uh, uh, no-fly zone. We need uh, support with the uh, um, satellite images if to go, like, I mean, for the capacity. We need the cybersecurity support because in parallel uh, with the missiles attack, we have the cyber attacks within all these days. 
and uh, we can speak about the um, additional economic support that Ukraine would definitely need. It's not for the reconstruction, but just not to allow the Ukrainian economy to, um, to collapse in case of something. So when you speak about the sanctions, they are very important, but they need to be well targeted. We understand that a lot of economic sanctions, they have a long-term effect not the immediate. And for immediate effect, uh, um, sometimes when you're targeting uh, some people in uh, Moscow, you understand that these people don't care too much. So it's really necessary to check uh, who would care, who can influence the situation. And let's be honest, you can say that I'm clinical or something like this, but how many children of Russian politicians including those in the National Security Council of the Russian Federation, including in the parliament, have um, citizenship of the United States of America, have houses in Miami and in New York, including the daughter of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Russian Federation. She prefers to live in New York, not in Moscow. And we can go with this list. It's quite a well-known. They never um, trying to uh, to hide it. So uh, the question is what you would do if they are U.S. citizens. That also should be the answer, because that's nice when their um, parents are um, uh, tr trying to, I mean, uh, humiliate the United States and to attack other countries. But their um, children enjoy their uh, luxurious life somewhere in London or in the U.S. So that's also the question that should be responded, because... Uh, each of these individuals who've been voting for the annexation, who've been voting for the start of the military campaign, they should understand that uh, each of them will be punished. I think we'll, we'll see the answer to some of those questions soon enough. My, my, my sense is that if by the end of this week there are still you know, airlines operating flights to Moscow, if Russian banks are still connected to SWIFT, if natural gas is still flowing, if Germany still plans to shut down these nuclear power plants, then I think we will not have learned the lesson quite yet. And, and I hope the picture looks different than that. Hard to disagree with that, uh, Dalibor. Uh, we should also ask ourselves if it's difficult to exclude the Russians from the Western economic border how immensely more difficult would it be to exclude the Chinese? Uh, uh, you know, that's not a camel's nose under the tent. That's uh, the tent draped around the camel almost. Uh, Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, as Yulia suggested uh, at the start, uh, our hearts and prayers are with you and your friends and, and neighbors and uh, uh, I hope that we are constantly in touch with you um, and that the worst does not transpire. That's about the, on the Eastern Front, that's about what passes for a Sunday day. Uh, so thank you so much for, for being with us. Um, we are humbled you by your bravery. Thank yes. you for thank you. the Ukraine. Delibor, take we us will home. survive. Remember yeah. the words of our anthem. We will survive. <laughs> Well, the United States always does the right thing, even if it takes a long time and we exhaust every other option first. So uh, in a world without, without love, uh, we'll do our best. From Dalibor Rohaj. And Giselle Donnelly. And Yulia Georga. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. 
And many thanks to our special guest, Hannah Schellest. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.